Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Comics in comic books and newspapers have come to hold quite an important place in contemporary society. Satire, particularly political commentary, is perhaps closest to its essence when expressed in the visual form as in a comic book. However, it can be argued that comics have played a far greater role in the history of humanity, tracing back to all images depicting a sequential number of actions. My guest in this archive edition of Radio Curious is Scott McLeod, the author of Understanding Comics, a book about the history of comics. This program was originally broadcast in August of 1994, when Radio Curious was called Government Politics and Ideas. I began by asking Scott McLeod, why are comics perceived as a new invention when they actually have been around for a very long time? Well, it's a good question and one that I've been wrestling with lately. Uh, I think that uh, comics have often been confused with their format, with their genre. All of these things are indeed recent. Uh, the magazines that comic books have been, um, that, that, that we associate with comics, the stapled color covers, the 32 pages of newsprint, all of these things are 20th century inventions. And if one believes that that's what comics are all about, that that's what comics can be, then indeed uh, comics are recent. But if you define comics as sequential art, as that art of putting one picture after another, then we can trace it all the way back to uh, at least Egyptian wall paintings and uh, works like uh, the pre-Columbian picture manuscripts or the Bayou Tapestry. Even if you want to define comics more narrowly, though, such as um, uh, requiring panel borders, having to be printed and distributed and sold, um, uh, having word balloons, ink drawings, all of these things, you still go back at least four or five hundred years to many Egyptian, uh, European uh, broadsheets which told pictures in sequence very much like our modern comics. So um, I think that as we expand the definition of comics, we expand its history. But as long as that definition remains very narrow, people will perceive the history as being very recent. Well, when we uh, define comics, um, I would call on you for that definition. What would your definition be? Well, the short definition is sequential art. Um, Again, that art of putting one picture after another, but that can be um, a little too broad. The long definition that I that I concocted for um, those occasions when we need to send a very accurate razor down uh, is juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence. I'm, I'm certainly not recommending this for casual conversation, uh, but that helps distinguish it from things like animation and other forms of uh, visual art that, that have uh, a sequence in them. When we look at comics, um, you've defined in your book uh, a similarity that comics, I think, worldwide have, with the possible exception of some of the comic strips in Japan. Um, they stress, in almost all cases, an action-to-action -action, uh, kind of fold. What does that mean, and how is it different from subject-to-subject, subject or moment-to-moment, moment or scene-to-scene? Scene? Well, the sorts of transitions between panels are one of the, the invisible aspects of comic storytelling. 
I managed to, to break it down into six groups, some of which you just mentioned. And I found that American and European comics did stress that action-to-action -action sort of transition in which every panel shows a distinct act. Um, and I think the reason why that became uh, very prominent here in Europe and in America is because uh, we tend to emphasize very plot-based stories, stories that are a series of events, uh, especially in America where um, our comics generally are, well, for lack of a better word, really stories for boys <laughs> more often than not. Um, that very plot-based action-to-action uh, storytelling technique makes sense. But there are a lot of other options. And um, as you mentioned, in Japan, there are some exceptions. Uh, a number of Japanese cartoonists, actually the majority, uh, tend to, while they still use those action-to-action those -action sequences, also use a larger number of what I call aspect-to-aspect -aspect sequences, which are very, um, very nonlinear. They just sort of set a wandering eye over a scene or an idea and they allow for, for more sort of disconnected images that we assemble in our mind to make uh, a scene come, uh, to make a scene happen. It's a lot like some film techniques which, which just show you various moments, various images, which all together add up to a scene or an idea. Do you find that that's peculiar to um, Japanese comics because of their, the Eastern, um uh, orientation, and, and is it connected to Chinese comics, if you've seen any? The Chinese have a, a rich tradition of cartooning, but uh, not quite as many comics as, as that I've seen. And other uh, comics on the Asian continent tend to either follow the lead of Japan or of uh, European comics. Uh, so Japan is definitely the, 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 the leader in that, the, that Asian style. But um, uh, I think it may, although I'm, I'm reluctant to generalize overlay about, you know, that Eastern mindset, which sometimes we can overemphasize to the extent that we, we uh, cast, you know, the Japanese mind as being somehow a different species, or something, which, of course, is, you know, is a dangerous uh, trend. But, um, but I do think that there are some, at least some cultural differences, which in uh, Japan... Uh, cause the cartoonists to be less obsessed with getting from point A to point B, and are more willing to wander a little. Um, also, the Japanese storytelling style may have been affected by the fact that the written language in Japan still bears more of its pictorial heritage than uh, here in the West, uh, and so the, uh, the linkage between words and pictures is much stronger. Well, that, that kind of draws me to the story story that you tell in, in uh, your chapter called Blood in the Gutter, where you talk about uh, a daydream that you recurrently had as a child, where you um, felt that the world, the whole world, was just a show put on for your benefit. And the way your pictures are drawn is where your little boy character, which I presume is you, is looking, is what the picture is shown, and, and behind him or uh, to the side of him, if he's turned, there's a blank. Can you uh, elaborate on that? Sure. What we don't see isn't here? Yeah, this was a daydream I had that I found a lot of my other friends had also had. Um, sometimes the, the daydream would go that, that the whole world was uh, were machines, were robots, which were busily constructing the set of the next place that you would go to. 
and others just imagined that everything disappeared, that the sidewalks, the streets all rolled up behind them. Uh, and I think in many ways that that fantasy is really a throwback to our initial perceptions, since really, after all, we have no proof that anything is here outside of what our senses report to us. It's the old existentialist conundrum that, that we can we can discover as much as we like about the world, and we can uh, get all of this information that, that allows us to have a knowledge that, say, um, Europe or Mount Everest or whatever exist, even though we're not seeing them at any particular time. But we really have no proof. What we really do is commit an act of faith that allows us to negotiate the real world, that allows us to to receive the parts, but to perceive the whole. And I found that very interesting in relation to comics, because that's exactly what we do when we take those fragmented static images in the panels and connect them in our minds and make them whole, make them move, make them come alive. That's that same act of faith that we commit every single day, every minute of every day, in, in learning to uh, inhabit a world which we only see a tiny piece of at any given time. Well, if that is the invisibility of comics, um, why are comics different from um, animated uh, films, uh, videos, or, or whatever? I think because in film, uh, you know, just that art of moving Im- images, uh, the, the way in which we take each frame and connect them and make them move is much more automatic. Uh, it's involuntary. Anyone, e- even a child, seeing a television or movie for the first time is able to perceive the motion there. Whereas with comics, what we do is uh, allow space to stand in for time. Space does for comics what time does for film. Can you explain that? Excuse me? Can you explain that, what space does for time, what um, uh, time does for film? Well, the simplest example would be if you take a strip of film out of a projector and, and snip it and lay it down on a light table. What you have is a comic, a very, very slow comic, but a, a comic nonetheless. Because what had been different images projected on the same space, uh, simulating motion before, are now uh, different images existing at the same time next to each other at different spaces. So um, that's why that juxtaposition is so crucial for comics. The fact that they're side by side is what distinguishes them uh, from film. Uh, but uh, the thing about the, the, the persistence of vision and all, and all those things which help us to perceive motion in film, uh, those are um, those are very automatic. Whereas in comics, it takes it, the, the reader has to be a willing collaborator. That is, they have to um, they have to be willing to do the work to make these pictures come alive. And you can perceive the comics page as a static, still, timeless piece of work if you like. It's only when you choose to read those panels and to make the move that they do move. Well, is the reader then doing the work that uh, we do when we watch a show-and-tell of another? Um, well, yes. I mean, there's that, there's that call and response, um, that, that the artist only meets you halfway in comics. Uh, and he's showing, he's showing what's in the panel, and you're, you're telling him what's between the panel. What is between the panel? How do we know what to tell? How do we know what to tell ourselves? Well, that's the question that every cartoonist has to ask themselves every time they draw a comic, because they can 
they can't control what you're going to perceive between those panels. So they need to give you those reference points that makes um, the important story points inevitable, that, 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 that compels the reader to read what, what the artist wants them to read. Where I think comics find their magic is when there's some latitude, where the interpretation of the reader is not fully controlled, but where the reader is allowed to, um, to branch out a little and to imagine what's between the panels in various ways, such you, that every reader's interpretation is different. Can you give some examples of that? Well, sure. In, in my book, I give uh, the simplest example of, of that latitude is uh, a two-panel sequence where a, um, a deranged lunatic is raising an axe over, um, over his victim and, uh, and, is, and is saying, um, you know, now you die. And the victim is saying, no, no, and running. And then you cut to another panel of a cityscape from a distance, and you have a scream ringing out over that cityscape. Now, the natural assumption is that that axe fell and hit the victim and killed him or, or, or maimed him. But every reader's interpretation is going to be different. As I say in the book, to kill a man between panels is to condemn him to a thousand deaths because there's no controlling exactly how the, how the reader is going to interpret that, that murder. Scott, let me take a moment here and say that uh, you're listening to Government Politics and Ideas. My guest this week is author Scott McLeod, who wrote a really very curious book called Understanding Comics, uh, The Invisible Art. Scott, how does the comic artist know if anyone will listen? Well, uh, comics, there, there are various reasons why I call it The Invisible Art. One of the reasons is because it's fairly invisible in this society. And, uh, and comics artists have been laboring in relative obscurity for many years, um, just with their faith in the medium to, to fuel them, knowing that their audience is fairly small. That's beginning to change. Um, one of the high watermarks would have to be Art Spiegelman's mouse. When, when a comic book manages to win a Pulitzer Prize and get exhibited in the Museum of Modern Art and receive a Guggenheim grant and get reviewed in the New York Times, you... That does tell something. Yeah, indeed, and, 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 and it certainly gives some, some hope that people are indeed listening. I think more, more, more people have their ear to the ground now than ever uh, in regards to comic books. Um, it's a very hopeful time. Uh, more people are reading comics, and more people are drawn to various sorts of comics that are trying to push the envelope, that are trying to change the way people perceive comics. Well, again, can you give some examples of uh, pushing that envelope? Well, there are a number of... Uh, Cartoonists who are working in an autobiographical vein, something that was fairly unheard of just 10 years ago, one of the pioneers of that would be Harvey Pekar, who many people may know as, uh, as a uh, veteran guest on the, <laughs> the Letterman, Letterman show, but he actually has a serious side, too, and his book is quite wonderful. What's the name of his book? Uh, American Splendor. And it's just about Harvey's life. Um, he's a, a custodian in a hospital, and he writes about everyday events. Uh, this is one. This is one uh, revolution, but there are, there are many. There are some cartoonists who are working in a very surrealistic vein, who are um, uh, trying to use comics as a tool for unlocking the subconscious. There are other. Um, there are comics now which are uh, making very formal experimentations, which are uh, experimenting with composition, with uh, uh, new ways of telling stories, with new ways to compose a page. 
really comics are moving in many different directions all at once. We're in a very exciting time because nobody quite knows what works. So everyone has their own ideas about how to reinvent comics. And so they're being reinvented in many directions. Yet in your book, you um, uh, say that the creation of any work in any medium always follows a certain path, and, and then you demonstrate that in comics. Uh, so if it's following a certain path, can you tell us about that path and, and how maybe it's drifting to a new area in comics now? Well, the path, the reason I, I said it always follows a certain path is because I'm using it to define what, it, what the word medium means to me. Um, any art form or any mode of communication follows that path from from uh, the from one mind to another mind, uh, and I think all media are byproducts of that uh, sad inability we have to communicate directly from mind to mind. So we have to find ways that we can convert our thoughts into physical forms that can traverse the physical world, and then be reconverted by one or more senses back into thoughts. Uh, so this would be true of all media, of, of uh, you know, radio and speech, of uh, prose and painting, of, of comics and of, of any, uh, you know, of any other art form. So, um, so that's the that's that path. It's just from mind to mind. But uh, but in the course of that path, many many things can take place. And it's the way that comics are revolutionized is when the ideas being transmitted are being revolutionized. That is, when comics are transmitting new sorts of messages and when their means of transmission are being revolutionized, either artistically or in terms of the physical format or just the, 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 the general attitude of the, of the work being presented. Where do you see that going in the future? As I said, in, in as many directions as possible. I think that there's this, uh, there's been this assumption both inside and outside of comics the comics are going to move in any one direction. Do you have a direction for your own work in the future? Yes, I do. Well, probably probably the most exciting direction for me personally is moving towards bringing comics and computers closer together, both in terms of computer-generated imagery. What do you mean? Can you describe that? Well, sure. I, um, there are many applications which are being uh, created specifically for graphic artists, which are becoming more powerful with every uh, passing day and uh, I want to be a, I want to try to apply some of those to uh, making images for comics but also taking advantage of the new conveyances which is another uh, realm entirely uh, right now CD-ROMs are, are one of the more interesting uh, venues although of course they're just a transitional technology but the idea of getting comics through electronic means really uh, really prompts us to question the very nature of comics, an art form that's been uh, quite shaped by its technology, the technology of print, over the last 500 years. Before that, we were uh, carving on walls, and that was kind of hard to... On walls and, uh, and painting on deer skin and, uh, and uh, making base relief sculptures. As I say, comics, I think, predates print, so the idea that it may post-date print is not overly threatening to me personally. You have a very interesting comment, um, and, and I think I should describe that throughout the book you have a um, little character that is telling the story. I presume that character is you, is that right? Yes, that's my stand-in for, for me. I'm playing host of the book. And uh, as you host the book, you say that art, as I see it, is any human activity 
which doesn't grow out of either of our species' two basic instincts, survival and reproduction. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Um, first of all, the most important thing about the way I'm approaching art here is that I don't see it as an either-or proposition. I don't believe that you can point to a painting and say, that's art, and then point to a second painting and say, that's not art. Uh, clearly, art has to be a component of human behavior, which exists to varying degrees in everything we do. So, uh, in distinguishing that, I was trying to separate out from that, sort of that soup, the ingredients of survival and reproduction, because those are the, uh, the major motivations for our behavior, either the propagation of the race through reproduction, or our own survival so that we can live long enough to propagate the race through reproduction. Um, and really, if you look at it, the, those two instincts of, of survival and reproduction have an enormous complex of related activities and instincts which have grown um, and mutated in many different directions and, and motivate many things that we do right down to, to, to various minutiae. So our whole social, social structure, our, many aspects of our behavior are motivated by those. Uh, but when you separate those out, what's left is the way that we distinguish ourselves from that parade of history and um, the way that we're a little out of step, the way that we may have a little skip to our step or, or, or an odd rhythm to the way that we're marching you know, in that evolutionary parade. Or the way that we speak and communicate we with, speak, with sounds. Right, the way that we may perform our jobs, whatever. And that aspect of human behavior is what I see art as. And when that aspect dominates, when, it doesn't, when it's not easily traceable to those other two instincts, that's when I think art really blossoms. Yet, um, you talk about art, uh, or particularly comics, as a um, form of art, has properties that are shared with all other art forms. That's correct. What are those properties? Well, I think um, certainly the fact that, that as, as an art form, um, it's compensating for that, that isolation of the human mind. That's, that's the most fundamental similarity, the similarity that all, all media have with uh, comics. Also that I think in comics... Um, there are always people striving to express themselves, to do something of great uh, substance, uh, of lasting worth. And that's true in all art forms. Just as in all art forms, it's true that the vast majority of those um, of, of, you know, commercial practitioners are basically trying to survive or to enhance their social status or whatever. Um, the baser instincts generally tend to rule, and it's that minority that are at, often at, at uh, great uh, personal sacrifice are trying to uh, create something uh, of more lasting worth. Yet it's that minority uh, that is attacked by repressive governments and repressive societies. Why do you um, think that is the case? Well, if one is mo motivated by um, survival or by you know, advancing social status, it certainly doesn't pay to attack the status quo. But art by its nature especially when it's most intensely represented by a personality, um, is very good at detecting patterns, at, uh, at seeing that the emperor has no clothes, at realizing that the way things are are not necessarily the way they have to be. And that's a very, very threatening instinct. And that's certainly um, 
one of the reasons why artists are indeed among the most dangerous people for a repressive society. When, when artists are, are, are imprisoned or executed, it's not because they're mistakenly perceived as a threat. They are a threat to, to dictatorships everywhere because they expose the truth. And they show people uh, that their lives don't have to be the way that they should be. Scott, what kind of dangerous projects are you working on now? <laughs> well, I'm not much of a danger to anyone except myself at the moment. I, uh, I encountered a major uh, artist's block when I realized that, uh, that this book was uh, pretty much the end of a road that I had been on for several years and that I had to change direction. Right now, I'm going. I'm gearing up to work on a CD-ROM adaptation of the book, and also doing a number of shorter experimental projects. Uh, my next uh, project may be a um, uh, a peculiar uh, political satire called "The New Adventures of Abraham Lincoln," but that one is still pretty unformed. <laughs> so, uh, the, I think the, the short answer to your question is: I have no idea. But whatever it is, it's going to be comics. But your um path in life is drawing comics. Absolutely. Scott, the question that I always like to ask my guests at the end of a program is, uh, aside from your book, could you recommend or tell us about an interesting book that you've seen or read lately? Absolutely. My favorite book uh, in, in recent memory is a graphic novel, as we call them, in other words, a big comic book, called A Jar of Fools by a newcomer named Jason Lutz. He's from Seattle. He's 26. This is his first major work. And uh, it's splendid. It's, it's, uh, it really earns the term graphic novel. It's a true novel. And um, the characters and the story in it are, uh, are compelling and unforgettable, and I would very highly recommend it. Um, it was, it uh, came out in June, and it's uh, self-published by Jason Lutz, and uh, his, the name of his company is Penny Dreadful Press. You can ask your local comic store if they can find it for you. So it's a uh, graphic book similar to Understanding Comics that you wrote. Yes, absolutely. It is, it is, it is a comic book, and, uh, but it, is also, it also has all the best qualities that we associate with a good novel. Scott McCloud, author of Understanding Comics, The Invisible Art, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Barry. Scott McCloud is the author of Understanding Comics. The book that he recommends is The Jar of Fools by Jason Lutz, L-U-T-E-S. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, RadioCurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at RadioCurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.